Would you pray with me, please? Make space, O oh God, in our hearts and in our minds this morning for your advent, for the advent of your word for each of us. We pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. So when a, a couple is having relationship trouble, a piece of advice that a therapist will often give is that they try not to use what are called absolutes. Words like never and always and forever. As in, you always leave your socks on the floor or you, you never tell me that you appreciate me. Or like when a parishioner tells their pastor, I could listen to your sermons forever. You know, it's... <laughs> most of the time, it's an exaggeration and isn't always so helpful. So as you listen to the scripture today, you may have noticed that Paul has clearly not been to couples counseling. Five times in four verses, he uses absolutes. Rejoice in the Lord always. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. Do not worry about anything. In everything, let your requests be known to God. And if you do, the Lord will guard your heart with a peace that surpasses all understanding. Now, Paul's use of this uh, such extreme language at first made me wonder, you know, is he just naive? Don't worry about anything? Have you seen the mess that this world is? Show gentleness to all people. Have you met people? <laughs> and then I thought, if he's not naive, then maybe Paul, well, maybe he's just going for the shock value, you know, like politicians using hyperbolic, exaggerated language to, to make the headlines. Maybe Paul is just doing what he can to get our attention. But in the end, I decided that the simplest explanation was probably the best, that he means it. And that maybe the reason his language sounds so hyperbolic to us is because in the truest sense, it is. From the Greek stem bolikos, meaning to throw, and the prefix hyper, meaning beyond. Hyperbolic means to throw beyond, to go too far, to exaggerate. And I wonder if what's really going on in this passage is that Paul, well, he's throwing too far for us. He's going beyond anything we can really imagine. And because we can't imagine living the way he describes, instead of trying to go where he is, we tend to pull him back to where we are. We assume that he must be naive or for the shock value or exaggerating, extreme in some way. But more and more I am convinced that following Jesus is extreme. 
and it will require of us a more dramatic shift in the way that we see the world than we imagine. And I want to suggest today two things, two shifts, that were we able to make these shifts, then Paul's seemingly extreme language may not seem quite so far-fetched. The first shift is a shift in our awareness. And most of us spend most of our time with a running inner dialogue. The voice in our head is clear and it is constant. So constant that we begin to think this is all that we are and it never occurs to us that there might be an off button for it. Science though, thankfully, is beginning to make mainstream what monks and mystics have long known, that there is an off button. And everywhere you look these days, there are books and articles about the benefits of mindfulness training, right? And how it can help everything from depression to high blood pressure. But I want to say there is much more going on with mindfulness than health benefits. When we slow down enough, and when we get quiet enough, when we can turn off that button, even just for a few minutes, we enter into a whole different way of being in this world. And we discover peace there. And we discover that that peace is there regardless of the circumstances in our lives at the time. And we discover a joy there that can seemingly well up for no reason at all. And as we learn better to rest in that silence behind our thoughts, it is possible to become aware of a subtle aliveness a love, a presence that the mystics tell us is God, is the holy dwelling inside of us. And of course, our egos, our, our small selves, they don't much like the idea of the off button because from the ego's perspective, if we're not planning and worrying and striving, then we're not sure we exist at all. So it tries to convince us that there's nothing very important going on in this present moment outside of our thoughts. But when Paul says you don't have to worry about anything or, or that there is a peace that surpasses all understanding, I think he's speaking from this place and that he is inviting us to live more and more from a radically different way of being. So the first shift is a shift in awareness to live more in this present moment. The second is a shift from our head to our heart as the primary center of intelligence. 
when we live in our head all of the time, as most of us do, it makes no sense at all to love everyone or to love your enemies, as Jesus says, or to show gentleness to all, as Paul says. Our minds immediately begin to argue with it, and they're very persuasive. But the eye of the heart sees the world differently because it sees as God sees. And it knows things that our mind can't know. Our minds, more often than we think, make decisions out of fear, don't they? But the heart, la cour in French, is the seat of courage. And it's from our heart that we are more able to make decisions out of love. And as we activate that heart center and live more from there, the world begins to appear less threatening than it did. We begin to feel love for people, total strangers. This is the love of God welling up from within us. Now, what makes these two shifts so difficult is that they both require a surrender a surrender of control, and it terrifies our ego. We think that that steady stream of thought is the only thing standing between us and annihilation. We have to stay on guard. We have to keep planning. And if there were no God, no deeper dimension to life, then I would say that's probably true. But the more we learn to live in the aliveness of this present moment and from the deep well of love in our heart, we begin to see something that our mind's eye can't see. We begin to see that annihilation, our existence, was never in question. It is never in question. We begin to see that we are forever and always held in God's love. And yes, I am using absolute language there because it is never, ever not true. And so as we live into these Advent days and that we talk about our longing for Jesus to come into the world and into our hearts, we should know what we're talking about, what we're inviting. For we should not expect Jesus to come into our hearts and then basically leave us about our way. We should not think that we could say yes to the Prince of Peace and not have our lives more than a little bit altered. No, the incarnation of Jesus, the enfleshment of Jesus invites us into a radically different way of being in the world. A much more trusting way of being. A much more loving way of being. For we are forever and always held in God's love, and that fact is absolute. And the question for us is simply whether we are going to wake up to that truth 
and live from a place where we can enjoy the world as it really is. This world where we can really let our gentleness be known to all. Where we really don't have to worry about anything. This world where we can rejoice in the Lord always because we know that there is a peace that guards our hearts and minds in Jesus Christ and that peace it surpasses all understanding.